Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. Hi everyone, this is Stick to Wrestling. My name is John McAdam. No goofy intro this week. I'm going to start this podcast off by saying that Black Lives Matter. No buts, no whatabouts, no false equivalencies. Black lives matter. And if you're going to say, well, all lives matter, all lives can't matter until black lives matter. Okay? I feel so bad for anyone who has to go through living living in this country, having to be afraid of their dad getting killed by a cop, having to be afraid of their kid being killed by a cop, having to be themselves being afraid to be killed by a cop. I mean, a month after we have all this civil unrest because of the death of George Floyd, we have Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and I'm sick of it. I am sick of it. It's got to stop. There's got to be change. I know we have police officers that listen to this podcast. I used to have an uncle who was a cop. I respect cops. I know They have a hard job. They have to look at the worst of everything every day. But we can't have what happened in Minneapolis. We cannot have what happened in Kenosha anymore. It's got to stop. And I'm going to use my voice and this platform to try to get people to just say, look, have a little sympathy for someone who is black and has to live in this country going through what they go through. That's all. I'm off my pedestal. I want to welcome Steve Generali, our guest for this week. Steve, how are you? Hey, it's good to be back after a lengthy absence. And uh, I wasn't going to say this, but because of your excellent uh, speech you just made, John, I will say this. Glenn Gilberti, formerly known as Disco Inferno, who apparently is a real douche, he was on uh, Twitter and he had this comment saying, so technically the sports leagues are boycotting the fans, which I thought was a real wise-ass comment. I responded back to him saying, no, more boycotting, poor policing, and the bad politicians who bury their heads in the sand regarding it. And uh, none other than Mark Calloway, The Undertaker, liked my post. So I just wanted to say that. Excellent. Wow. And yeah, that is a, I mean, I'm, I'm, wow, you know, Glenn, I'm sorry that life isn't just going on as normal for you, but there are bigger things than you getting to watch a baseball game. I was, yeah, I'm a huge MLB fan like you guys are, and I was so proud that the players uh, took a moment to step away from their sport, from their business, to show how important this issue is. And um, it, it really galled me that somebody like uh, Disco Inferno had no clue what was going on. No, I mean, like I said, I, I totally respect what the NBA, NHL, and Major League Baseball did. I mean, it, it just... They're sending out that message. It cannot be business as usual anymore. We can't just say, okay, that happened. Let's move on. I'm, I'm very proud of those guys. Absolutely. All right. Steve, we're bringing you on because you are – I, I want to talk a little bit about you first. When did you start first become a wrestling fan? Well, you and I started right about the same time, 1976. They were setting up MSG, Bruno and Parisi against Superstar and Koloff, and I was hooked from that moment. I had seen a little bit of wrestling IWA around 74 with Igor and that crowd. And it was kind of low rent, a little tacky. But when I saw Superstar and uh, Albano, the Wizard, Blassie, and then, of course, Bruno, who really made it all seem believable and legit, I was hooked for life. 
Yes, I mean, same here. It sounds like we almost have the exact same background. The first thing I saw was IWA in 1975. I saw one hour of it, but I was like, wow, this stuff's pretty crazy. And then I moved up to Massachusetts and started watching right around the same time you did, like uh, spring 1976, when everything got rolling for me as far as like Strongbow coming in and Bruno being part of it and the three wise men of the East. Oh, yeah. You know, for people that, you know, kind of uh, crap all over the WWF, when you see guys like Hanson and Brody come in and Superstar, I mean, we had the best heels and it was just awesome wrestling. I mean, I know it was slower paced. I know all the uh, negative things about it, but it was just awesome. Yeah, I mean, you know, you watch it today, like if you go on the network and watch the old all-star wrestling shows, yeah, I, I get that they're slow moving. I get that there's not a lot of angles going on, not a lot of main events. But back in the day when you had an angle, when you had a main event on TV, it was a really big deal. It stood out. Yeah, absolutely. I know uh, during this hour, we're going to talk about some of the movers and shakers of 1979. And one, one young guy that came in, and I think he started right at the end of 78, was Steve Travis. And this kind of resonated with me that Steve Travis was this ultimate, you know, white bread, baby face type guy. And, and he was really earnest and hard working. I think it was maybe about the third or fourth TV appearance he made. They put him in a 10 minute draw with veteran great Spiros Arion. And just the fact that this young green guy could hang in there with the with Arion, who had such a great reputation and was really a scary heel against Bruno and Strongbow, this guy was made just from a 10 minute draw. So. It's such a shame that today's wrestling is so far removed from that, where something so simple like a 10-minute draw could make a guy. Yeah, I mean, back in the day, I got one hour of wrestling per week, one hour of WWF wrestling. Now the WWF cranks out, what, seven hours of TV every week? And it's just hard. You know, you have so much to focus on that you can't focus on anything. Yeah, that's that's so true. And I I think... uh, one guy, another guy from that period that comes to mind is Sweet Hansen. Like Sweet Hansen, you know, I know you talk about raw bone guys and it's, you know, he's the definition. But, you know, when you look at him, you, you do say, you know, gee, this guy's going to be a one and done against Backlund. He doesn't have much of a chance. But in that era, he did such a great job of putting over the finishers. You know, looking at it from a kayfabe perspective, you believe that this guy, if he hits that pile driver just right on Backlund, you know what? He might win. He might be the next champion, even though he's not really a top-tier candidate like a Patterson or a Valentine. No, I I didn't think he was a really credible challenge for Backlund, especially considering, you know, the guys you mentioned. I I think, as a matter of fact, we talked about this on the show before. He was supposed to come in but not get a title shot. That was supposed to be Roddy Piper. And supposedly Vince McMahon Sr. took one look at Roddy Piper and said, no way this guy's main eventing Madison Square Garden. Right. Yeah, the WWF was, even back then, they were just too obsessed with size, I guess. And uh, oh, yeah. I think Piper, for main event stats, was a little too, little too small. Yeah, and just so everyone knows, like the, the 1984 version of Roddy Piper was a lot bigger than the 1979 version. Oh, yeah, there, there's no comparison. Yeah, he, he looked like, through those certain vitamins he was taking, he got another 40 pounds of bulk on him. Oh, yeah. Steve, let me tell you about this. What I'm using sort of as a manual, let me tell everyone what what we're doing. I am going to go over, or Spicter Wrestling is going to go over 1979 in the WWF 
pretty detailed, I would say. And this is going to be like a three or four episode series. And we're going to switch out guests so we get different perspectives. But what I'm using as a kind of a guide for this, I bought this book about two months ago. It's called When It Was Real. And it was written by Nikita Brezhnikov, whose real name is John Krasuski. But this book is like a manual of everything that happened in the WWF from the beginning of 1970 through the end of 1979. The book isn't for everyone, but it's for me. I absolutely love this. It's available at Scott Teal's website. Once again, the name of the book is called When It Was Real. And if you're a hardcore diehard WWF fan like me, like Steve, I mean, I can't recommend this enough. Have you heard about this? I've heard about the book. I, I don't have it, uh, but Nikita is, I think, one of my Facebook friends. And uh, based Same on your recommendation, I, I think I got to get a copy. Yeah, it, it, it can, like I said, it's not for everyone. It can be a little bit dry, but I love it. If like someone said, okay, I'm going to write a wrestling book just for you, what's it going to be? I'd be like, well, detail everything that happened in the WWF between, I would say, 76 through 84, but I'll take 70 through 79. That would be great to have on the shelf just for reference and just to, you know, go back and recall those great memories. Believe me, he is on the list, as Chris Jericho would say. Uh, So anyway, coming into 1979, Bob Backlund is the WWF champion and Larry Zbysko and Tony Gurria are the tag team champions. Steve, your thoughts on the Zbysko Gurria tag team? Well, recently I heard a shoot interview, a kind of a shoot interview with Tony Gurria, which is a rarity in itself. And he made mention of something I, you know, I didn't know of. He said that the two of them had been teaming for a while, and one taping, he thought that they were just going to get the the plug pulled on them as far as them getting a push, and maybe they were going to go their separate ways. But this one taping, he showed up, and they said, "Hey, guess what? Tonight you're going to get the belts or get the straps." And they ended up winning, and they held it for a few months. Looking back on them now, uh, I think Zabisco and Gurria were pretty bland, pretty forgettable team. You know, Gurria had the big finisher, a big sunset flip off the top turnbuckle, which uh, is probably the second worst finishing move for a tag team. I'll give the Rougeau's atomic groin to the face his worst finishing yes. move of, of, of my lifetime, maybe. But yeah, you know, Zabisco, I think as it, you know, obviously history proved out, became a much better heel than kind of a generic good guy. And Gurria is just always the placeholder for uh, mid-card WWF guys. So Yeah, I, I saw Zabisco and Gurria. They had been around uh, since the end of 1976. And after two years, they're just kind of getting stale in the WWF. They win the tag team titles and just neither of them felt like a star to me. Right. I think one thing that Vince Sr. really liked was having these guys from exotic locales. Because after all, with the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, you had Tony Gurria from Auckland, New Zealand. You had Carlos Rocha, the Portuguese champion. You had all these guys from different places. And, and Vern did the same thing, you know, having Otto Wants win the world championship, having uh, Canadian Rick Martel win, having uh, Jumbo Saruta win the title. So those guys, really emphasized that these uh, uh, their federations were worldwide, whereas promotions like the Crockett's in Florida, they were just into the competition aspect of wrestling. Let's, let's have the best guys win. So kind of interesting in the, in the philosophy of promotion. You know, you bring this up. I'm going to get a little bit off point here. 
I started getting the Southeast Championship Wrestling from Knoxville in 1980. I got it briefly on a local cable station. Mm -hmm. And unlike the WWF, where you had guys from all over the place, Everyone was billed from Knoxville, Tennessee. And guys that killed Carl Cox, everyone was from Knoxville. That's interesting. <laughs> and I thought it was totally weird, man. Guys who I knew were, who were not from Knoxville. Like, I knew Dick Slater was from Tampa, and they're saying he's from Knoxville. It was, it was nuts. <laughs> One thing that I found interesting about Zabisco is doing some more research. In the, in the mid-'70s, before this tag team run that we're speaking about, he spent a couple of years in the Carolinas, and then in 76, he spent uh, another good portion of that year in Florida and also in L.A. So yeah. it's interesting to see uh, guys like Zabisco, who, of course, got trained by Bruno and spent some early days in the Northeast, went out. He went to Vancouver as well, and he really um, you know, fine-tuned his act and, uh, of course, in 1980, uh, becoming a great heel, uh, he'd be the rest of his career. Yeah, the first time I heard about Larry Zabisco, it was 1976. I was reading about him wrestling in the Los Angeles territory in the magazines. And I was like, why, if he's Bruno's protege, why is he not on TV here? And about six months later, he showed up. Yeah, that's right. I remember uh, thinking he came to MSG in a suit, all dressed up, to letting fans know that he had come back on the scene and uh, got the rub from Bruno. And I think Bruno was main eventing. And, uh, yeah, it was it was interesting to see him. He was really, uh, you know, Junior Bruno, all right, because he wrestled like him and, uh, you know, was a lot like him, except he was smaller and, uh, you know, more uh, more lean looking than Bruno was. Yeah, uh, Zabisco, I was always a little bit surprised that they didn't use the Bruno connection to have a Larry Zabisco versus superstar Billy Graham match at Madison Square Garden when Graham was champion. And as time went on, I learned that, well, we have Madison Square Garden, but then we have the... Uh, the arena up in Long Island where the B challengers kind of got the shots against superstar Billy Graham. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's documented in Nikita's book too, from what I heard, uh, there's quite a, quite a few uh, defenses that Larry had against, uh, well, challenging against superstar, but uh, yeah, he, he was a after those, he was really locked in with that tag team with Gurria. Yeah. The, the Long Island Coliseum. How can I forget the name of that place where I went to go see an NWA show in 1987? That was a complete bomb. But anyway. <laughs> all right. So we come into the year. Those are the champions. Then we have Victor Rivera, who returned in 1978. He had been a babyface in the WWF since the 60s. And now he's back with Fred Blassie as his manager. Any thoughts on Rivera coming in? Well, uh, I had seen Rivera just a little bit, I think, in 76 or 77 when he was still a good guy. Uh, he Again, he was another one of those guys that came in the suit in the ring and got the, the special introduction in the ring. And uh, and he was really, uh, I thought, a very credible good guy in his heyday. Uh, he went all the way back to the mid to late 60s in WWF. By this run, when he's a heel, he was kind of bloated looking and overweight. Um, I mean, the only positive thing I remember him doing was the, the tag team match with him and Arion, where Maivia turned on Backlund in that match. Uh, Backlund really let Rivera have a ton of offense, and uh, it made him look like a million bucks. And they did about nine to 10,000 fans when they had a rare title match in Philadelphia where R Rivera challenged Backlund. But other than that, what I'm talking about right now, Victor Rivera's run was very, very forgettable. 
Yeah, I remember the same thing you do. Uh, he was in like 76, 77, getting kind of a Dominic DiNucci type push. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I knew through the magazines that he had turned heel in the Los Angeles promotion. So when they announced him on TV and returning Victor Rivera, I was like, okay, is he going to be a babyface or a heel? And then I remember Vince McMahon acting all shocked when Rivera came out with Fred Blassie as his manager. That's right. Yeah, there was a there was a time there where they were really pushing the idea that Blassie had the uh, army of turncoats, as he had Arion, uh, Victor, and Maivia all three together, and and also, as I'm sure you're about to mention, a very young Alan Coage, future Bad News Brown, uh, was also uh, hand, handled by Blassie for a brief period of time. That was a very odd push, if you want to call it that that Alan, Bad News Alan Coage, later known as Bad News Brown, got in the WWF. He was managed by Blassie, but I don't think he was ever on the championship wrestling program. I don't remember ever seeing him. I remember he was on the all-star wrestling shows, and he occasionally appeared at Jack Witchie's sports arena, but th you know that, that was it. He was like this mystery man. Yeah, I, I do recall seeing him on a couple of the MSG shows, and I was impressed by him. He'd always work like the opening match. And he seemed a lot better than uh, the typical WWF prelim guys. And I was surprised in my research that they actually let Steve Travis get a clean win over him uh, before Travis was over and done with on this run. In North Attleboro, Massachusetts, there was, I've, I've mentioned this on the show before, there was a, an arena that had WWF wrestling every Friday night that was like walking distance from my house. It was a mm -hmm. mile from where I lived. And in 1979, I snuck out there and I saw Frank Williams beat Bad News Alan Coage clean in the middle. How could that be? <laughs> I, and, and, you know, like I said, he wasn't on TV, so it didn't matter. And here, he, 10 years later, he's getting a huge push uh, main event against Hulk Hogan. Right. What a, what a difference 10 years can make. <laughs> to, to say the least. All right. <laughs> also, the year starts off with the return of Bulldog Brower. They start mentioning him on TV that Lou Albano is trying to get him reinstated from the WWF. And finally, it's announced that a team of doctors have declared him stable enough to compete. So Brower gets this big buildup. And then when he showed up on TV, even as a small child, I was like, oh, my God, this guy is terrible. He's fat and he has thinning hair and just a big belly, little legs. I didn't think much of Bulldog Brower, Steve. What are your thoughts? Well, uh, I saw him live against Backlund, and he drove up to the arena in Binghamton in a big Cadillac, a huge Cadillac. He had his little girl with him who looked uh, terrified. <laughs> she looked like she was about five years old. And he was actually interviewed by the local paper, and I think he told the reporter that he was 39. But he looked more like 59. But again, doing research on Brower, I found that uh, you know he was an IWA mainstay in the mid '70s, and when the IWA kind of went belly up around '76, '77, he went back to Detroit, did some work for the Sheik there, and then he ended up going to Australia on a tour. And after that Australian tour, that's when he began to get ready for this New York run that we're speaking about. Yeah, and it felt like it was almost his his goodbye run. Like someone must have liked him, and so okay, Bulldog, you know you're. You're living in Delaware, and you're driving <laughs> distance from, from all these arenas, and we'll just give you one last run. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, I think if, if fans, uh, any, if there are fans that like him or liked him or remembered him well, uh, 
There is some bizarre footage of him on YouTube. Uh, I think it was the match, probably a Joe Goodhart show, where it's the Sheik against Abdullah, and uh, for no reason, Bulldog Brower is there in the match, and he's uh, just uh, an interested third party who's interfering constantly in the match. And this is, again, the early 90s, so it's kind of interesting to see. I, I think I've mentioned this on this show before. If I have, forgive me. I was there when Joel Goodhart announced that he was bringing Abdullah the Butcher versus the Sheik to Philadelphia. And, you know, he, he was acted like he was bringing this absolute dream match. He was so excited and I felt for him, but we're all kind of like shaking our heads going, oh, my God, this is not going to be Flair Steamboat. <laughs> this, is, this is about 20 years too late. <laughs> if there was ever a time for it I, I, I was never into that that kind of wrestling the chic george Steele, abdul the butcher it was never my thing yeah and, and bulldog brower out of that group he, he probably would be the very lowest rung of that group or that type of wrestler and we had just had lou graham in like the previous year and he was another one that was just very uh lackluster yeah uh, well thankfully he was one and done versus backland around the horn but he did get that big TV win against Ivan Putski, which I think that was the only time ever Ivan Putski lost on TV. Yeah, as you probably know, that I guess that was done to just give uh, Putski a little uh, wake-up call that uh, he should be, uh, you know, a little attitude adjustment, I guess you would say. I, I have heard over the years that Ivan had a, a bit of an ego. But you know what? He drew here in the WWF. I mean, you put Ivan Putski in the main event and uh, and a, a gym in Nashua, New Hampshire, and, and it's going to be full. I actually did kind of like our friend uh, Al Getz that does the wrestling statistics. I kind of did a, a WWF version of that. And Putski actually finished number two after Backlund for 1979 because he just won constantly, especially on the B shows beating like the Koloffs and people like that and, and beating my via. And also, of course, by the end of the year, he'd be tag team chance with Tito Santana as well. Yeah. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here, but the, I remember seeing Putski and Santana team up for the first time. And, you know, it, it was the old WWF. Sometimes they would throw together these mongrel tag teams that would wrestle on TV once. And that would be the end of it. You kind of put two guys over in one match, but mm -hmm. I remember they did the match. They had an interview afterwards, and as soon as they did the interview, I knew these guys were winning the tag team titles. Yeah, I mean, they, they were a really good team, and, and I'd say, you know, Tito Santana has got to be one of the most underrated guys. And again, get, talking about shoot interviews, I just ran into an old shoot interview with Ole Anderson talking about how Tito Santana worked for him, and and he, he meant nothing. And uh, I know Ole Anderson's famous for these rants, but, but Tito Santana ended up being such a worthwhile part of the WWF. I know the WWF isn't remembered for work rate and good matches, but man, Tito Santana from beginning to end, even in the early 90s, he was still putting out good matches. He really was, especially like you said, the WWF was not known as a work-rate territory, but Tito was having excellent matches with Greg Valentine, excellent matches with Randy Savage, etc. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I really love the ones with Savage. Uh, I mean, Savage wrestled everybody on the WWF roster, and obviously the ones with Steamboat are the ones that people remember the most, but I think the ones with Santana are arguably just as good. Uh, you know, uh, the more I think about it, I agree. I mean, Tito was fantastic. In 1979, he came in as kind of a, you know, the, the young, handsome baby face uh, he was a guy I'd never heard of before because he'd never used the, the name Tito Santana before. 
But I mean, he had charisma. He had looks. He he could wrestle. Obvious to say, Ole really missed the boat on him. <laughs> Ole's the guy who goes out there and talks about how how Hulk Hogan was no good. That he had Hulk Hogan in Georgia, and he felt that you know Hulk Hogan was unpushable. So I mean, Ole, <laughs> I disagree with you. What can I say? Yeah, yeah, he he's really uh, he's really out there. <laughs> <laughs> One of these days, I have to have the Ole Anderson show where we talk about that interview he did with Dave Meltzer. It was over 15 years ago when, like, the two of them got into almost got into a fight. Pretty much did get into a fight on Dave's Yada show. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear that. I really would. I probably have it somewhere. I'll, maybe I'll put it up on the Stick to Wrestling website if I can find it. All right, so another big debut in the WWF. I remember watching Championship Wrestling. And Steve, you're going to understand this. One of my favorite parts was they'd intro the show and Vince McMahon would say, and making his debut in the World Wrestling Federation, like as soon as he said those words, I was I was like Pavlov's dog. I was going crazy <laughs> with anticipation. Who's it going to be? And if I had to pick a guy who, okay, this little name I want to come out of Vince's mouth, it would have been Ric Flair. But a close second place would have been Greg Valentine, and that's the name that came out of his mouth, and I was thrilled. Yeah, yeah Greg Valentine, he is such a great talent, and I know uh, if you, anyone's read some of my stuff on uh, on the Stick to Wrestling side or uh, uh, you know, any of the wrestling sites, I always push the idea that he and Morocco are the two that really stand out as far as like should be in the Observer Hall of Fame, but... I think people in both cases, people are remembering them from 1988 and beyond, but but their prime periods were so strong. And, you know, Valentine, for that period that we're speaking about, he was arguably as good as Flair, honestly. They were so close together. So it'd be hard to say that uh, Flair was really that much better than Valentine. I thought Flair was better than Valentine. And mind you, I had never seen either of one of them up until this point. I just, you know, saw their pictures in magazines. Mm-hmm. But those two, like, there's an expression in wrestling about, like, robes and jackets being artificial charisma. They're guys who aren't charismatic trying to wear this stuff to get over and as a replacement for charisma. Valentine had charisma and it was like his wardrobe brought that out in him. That's true. That that's true. He he was he was so real in the ring. I I know we hear those stories about Johnny Valentine, and it's so it's really heartbreaking to think that there's just so little footage of Johnny Valentine. You know, I mean, a handful of matches are out there, uh, and I, you know, he is just the real deal from what I, I've heard. But you know, in in our era where things got a little bit more uh, commercial and a little uh, less real, uh, Greg Valentine always seemed to to bring off that uh, realism in his matches. Yeah, I as soon as he came on TV, I mean, I was absolutely thrilled. And he brought something with him that we had never seen in the WWF before. And it just goes to show how much has changed because the figure four leg lock, I mean, by the middle of the 80s, it was a cliche. No one was winning with this hold anymore. But we had never seen it before. And Greg Valentine was using this hold to inflict not only pain, but injury upon his opponents. Guys were going out on stretchers from the figure four leg lock. Yeah, it's funny that you you say that because he had really been famous for for breaking Wahoo's leg, and 
I think it was uh, the next summer he came up to New York and did the same to Chief J. Strongbow, who was one of your favorite wrestlers. So <laughs> He was. I think the Wahoo broken leg was 77, and then Strongbow had his leg broken by Valentine in 79. So Greg's not being kind to our Native American friends. <laughs> yeah, that's that's, that's, you're next. That's true. That's true. All right. So um, the first Madison Square Garden show was January 22nd, and the main event is from a feud that we talked about a little bit already. It was the third match in the series, Bob Backlund against Chief Peter Maivia in a cage match. Have you seen any footage of this match? I have not. I I haven't seen any of their matches, honestly. Uh, I know there's some uh, bad uh, Rocky Raymond footage of uh, some of the Boston Garden stuff out there, with more like Bruno against Peter Maivia as they had a three-match series in Boston, Bruno and Maivia. But uh, I would love to see the Backlund-Maivia matches. Uh, You know, 78 for Backlund, he wins the title end of February. He really spends most of the year just beating Bruno's famous opponents. But this Peter Maivia feud was really his first out-of-the-box feud that was something on his own. And, uh, you know, I I, I even saw one of the matches in Binghamton, which was a good match, which uh, Backlund won. And I was uh, crestfallen. I thought Maivia was going to win the title. But they had some pretty good matches. I mean, I haven't seen any. I would love to see one. But I, I, here's a story from 1978. One of my friends went to Jack Witchie Sports Arena in North Attleboro, and the main event was Ken Patera against Peter Maivia. This was a few weeks before Maivia splits up. So okay. they have the match. Maivia wins by disqualification, and then he grabs the mic and he starts healing it up. I mean, <laughs> I didn't know what healing it up meant. But he's like, I know I did a great match, and you're all so happy to see me. Thank you. And everyone's like, whoa, this is not very babyface-ish of you. And, yeah, a few weeks later, the turn aired. I know. Looking back, you know, finally, you have fond memories of certain wrestlers. And he was one that always stood out for me that I really liked. Peter Maivia, the happy-go-lucky good guy, I really wasn't too fond of. The guy that Billy Graham smashed the ukulele over his head. I mean, he was a little too happy-go-lucky. but. When Maivia went heel, he really went heel. He went out and got fancy silk suits with scarves, and he looked like he was ready for Studio 54, and uh, he had Blassie at his side. I mean, he really looked first class. And I think he did such a great job uh, being an ambassador uh, in New York. Uh, Some other guys from the West Coast, especially his uh, brothers or cousins, the Simones, would be in by 1980. And then, of course, the whole... uh, revolution of the uh, family would come in, uh, including the rock eventually. So it was interesting how it all progressed. There are so many wrestlers from yesterday and all the way to today from the Peter Maivia trade. Now, another interesting match from Madison Square Garden on January 22nd, Roddy Piper makes his Madison Square Garden debut. So this is what throws me. I heard the story uh, about how Roddy Piper was supposed to get a two-match series against Backlund, but Vince Sr. saw him and decided he was too small. He had to have seen him in January. Yeah, you know, uh, looking back on it, um, surprisingly, Piper had a three-match run at MSG that year. The first match was against Frankie Williams. (laughs) Always the two of them were put together. And then he had a match against Steve King, a WWF jobber. And then the final MSG match that year was against Johnny Rods, who I think they had wrestled each other in L.A. when he was Java Ruck. 
But yeah, I, I mean, I think they must have liked Piper to a degree. Otherwise, he wouldn't have kept coming back to MSG. But, uh, I, you know, I, I agree that he wasn't ready for the main event, uh, at least not at MSG. Uh, but, but obviously, Roddy Piper became, you know, one of the all-time great icons of wrestling, one of my all-time favorites for sure. Well, same here. And I mean, Roddy Piper at this point, he was a little bit of a mystery man, almost like Bad News Alan Coage. You mm-hmm. read about him in the magazines, but he's not on championship wrestling, yet he is on all-star wrestling. I remember he was on once. I got the show in, very weak reception from Worcester, Massachusetts. I'm like, wow, you know, I, I couldn't even see the picture. I could hear what was going on. Mm-hmm. And Roddy Piper was playing the bagpipes and being the bad guy. And there is a match on WWE Network on one of their 1979 all-star wrestling shows where he wrestles Jose Estrada. Roddy's a total baby face now. It makes no sense. And the match goes to a 10-minute time limit draw. Well, I, I'm sure you've seen the tapes, John, uh, of him on the West Coast uh, in the mid-70s for Shires and then again uh, against uh, Chavo in L.A. I mean, Piper showed so much uh, intensity and so much charisma in those interviews. And he, he had to have been a, one of the best interviews in the mid-70s, even when he was probably like, you know, in his early 20s. But, you know, the, the New York market, they wanted wrestlers who were really ready for prime time and guys who were more in their 30s or 40s. And uh, Piper had to wait until the mid-80s, but was certainly worth the wait. Yeah, he, he looked like a kid, too. He looked very young, probably because he was. Let me think. Roddy Piper would have been 25, I think, at the time. Yeah, okay. Backlund wrestled Roddy Piper in Los Angeles, I want to say August 1978. So Backlund had to be familiar with him. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, Backlund's book, which is one of my all-time favorite wrestling books, that and J.J. Dillon's book, he does, they, Piper writes the foreword to the book, and they did mention that match and how much respect that they had for each other. And, and that, that would have been an interesting uh, feud had they done it with Backlund and, uh, when Backlund was the champion. Yeah, I also recommend Bob Backlund's autobiography. It was really well written. And Bob, it seems to me Bob didn't tell a single lie. If he did, I didn't pick up on it, which kind of makes the book unique. And he takes you through his career, really from the time he started until the time he lost the WWF title for the first time. Yeah, I know some people are upset that the book essentially ends when the title reign ends, but that was what the meaning of the book was, was supposed to be about the championship run. But what I loved about that book particularly, not to keep going on about the book, but when they really focus on the book about the Patterson-Backland feud, and Patterson is quoted in the book talking about how Bob just wanted to call the match in the ring. He didn't really have all the knowledge that a veteran like Patterson had. And Patterson basically told him, you know, let's see how far we can take these fans for like a roller coaster ride. Let's see if we can take them to the edge and kind of almost go over the edge. And and that's how uh, they really, I think Backlund learned a lot from working with Patterson is how to get the fans to basically, you know, eat out of the palm of your hands. And uh, those matches were really, uh, I know you like the Valentine matches, but the Patterson-Backlund matches were phenomenal as well. Although those matches were fantastic and Patterson, was fantastic. He was having good matches in like 1999 and the year 2000 <laughs> when he had to be in his 50s, if not in his early 60s. But he could do it in his sleep. Oh, he he, he could. And and I would say, uh, you know, I don't know if we have any young wrestlers or wannabe wrestlers listening to our podcast, but uh, that book is required reading, I think, for any young wrestler. I mean, you, you hear about the sacrifices that Backlund made sleeping in his trunk and uh, 
also a trunk of his car, I should say, and the uh, learning with Patterson and learning, you know, what, what, what is it the fans want out of the matches or, you know, the experience of going to the matches. It seems like today with WWE and the Performance Center, I think these guys have no clue what real wrestling is supposed to be. They have no idea what they're supposed to do or how to entertain the fans. I wish they could read that book because they'd learn so much just from that book. Yeah, I enjoy the current product. Just last Sunday, they or last Saturday, they had the NXT uh, special, which was really good, and SummerSlam was pretty good as well. So I'm I'm not knocking it, but I agree that they could learn. Not only could the students at the Performance Center learn a lot from Bob's book, the trainers could learn something. And you know, I'm getting on board with this whole like everyone is the same in WWE. They just you know if they, if they have a hot guy in NXT. They water him down as soon as they bring him up into the main roster. Oh, yeah, I, I agree. And, and I don't really follow today's wrestling, honestly. But uh, like AJ Styles, we use him as an example. By the time he finally came to the WWF, he was like an old school veteran who had been to tons of territories just because he had been in TNA and he'd been in other places. By the time he came to New York, uh, he was really, uh, you know, a very salty veteran <laughs> by today's standards, I should say. Yeah, I was very surprised they brought him in if for no other reason than he was already in his mid to late 30s, which is kind of kind of old to get started in any sport. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. We have another guy returning to the WWF, Flying Fred Curry. What were your thoughts on Flying Fred, Steve? Well, I, I wasn't very discriminating. You know, uh, I was very uh, happy with any newcomer coming in. It was always added excitement. Um, I was talking to actually a, a buddy of mine on the old K-Fate Memories site, and he was saying that he remembered seeing Fred in the early 70s in Detroit, like around 1972. And, and they said that by the time he got to New York in 79, he really had lost a lot of his luster and had slowed down a bit. And uh, I think you had said that he was uh, flying Fred Curry, but didn't do much flying. Uh, no, the only flying Fred Curry did was commercial. He was, <laughs> I, I just remember, you know, I always talked on the show about like being disappointed when I first saw Emil Moskaris. I'm not sure what you're feeling on that when Emil Moskaris first came out, came up here. Yeah, I, I, I liked him. I mean, uh, he was exciting as far as just, uh, you know, his gear and everything was certainly different than, uh, what we were used to and his moveset was different, but, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think uh, Bill After made him more exciting than he probably truly was. Yeah, and good good job by Bill After making his favorite wrestler look great and having that build up so big that you know it was naturally a letdown when Masquerade wasn't flying all over the place the whole match. Fred Curry, on the other hand, I just don't think he really brought anything to the table. He wasn't flying at all and he was you know he wasn't a big guy i i he wasn't much better than a jobber in my opinion yeah i think um uh, kind of a comparable wrestler to him would be kind of like tony carisi uh except fred was a little bit more slender and more more looking like a, a high flyer but he really wasn't no he he did this thing where he jumped in the air and his hands touched his feet, but that was that was all he had. It was it was not good. Mm-hmm. All right, I'm glad we have time for this because I have a major thing I want to talk about. The Valiants make their return in 19, early 1979. Finally, these guys are back. The Valiants had main evented Madison Square Garden. I mean, all of the big arenas 
in the Northeast, they main event in Baltimore, Boston, Pittsburgh, and MSG. You just didn't see tag teams in main events like that, opposing guys like Bruno and Strongbow. True, true. When they arrived, uh, I'm sure you and I had the same feeling like, wow, they're finally here. And it wasn't soon after that that you were saying like, yeah, what am I missing? <laughs> what is, what's so big about the Valiant Brothers? But I think it was just times had changed a bit. You know, in the early 70s with Albano at their side, uh, you know, even though they had him again in the late 70s, uh, I think that they were, you know, kind of fresh and exciting and, and their their gear uh, coming to the ring. They looked really flamboyant and, and larger than life. But uh, you got to keep in mind, by 1975, we had Billy Graham with the biggest muscles in the world and the best, uh, you know, talking in the world. And he made such a huge impression. And then when the Valiants came back in 79, physically, I think that they were a bit diminished compared to the way they had been. Obviously, Jimmy got the hep C and ended up getting replaced by a guy, Mitchell, uh, Jerry Valiant. And and the funny thing is that uh, Steve Travis, who we talked about earlier, supposedly was potentially going to be the third Valiant brother, which would have been interesting because Steve Travis in the WWF was a very mild-mannered, uh, good-natured guy. I, I don't see him bleaching his hair and becoming a loud-talking uh, heel, but that could have happened. Well, so much to go over. Supposedly, Steve Travis was, you know, he was a nice enough guy, but, I mean, his mild-mannered persona that he had on TV was nothing like him. Supposedly, he and Rick McGraw were like the king partiers in the WWF. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. For the people that don't know, he, they came in together in '82 as the Carolina Connection, and they were a mid-level tag team. They never really uh, won the gold or anything, but they were a popular team. I'm sure uh, they were getting lots of girls on the road in those days. Oh yeah, I mean they were like two soft-spoken Southern gentlemen when the cameras were on, but supposedly when the cameras were off, these guys were party animals. But yeah, you <laughs> mentioned something I had never thought of that before. That maybe the reason now. Going back a little bit, by 79, I was getting back issues of the Aptor magazines, and Mm -hmm. the Valiants were frequently on the cover of the magazine, and -hmm. they looked fantastic. These two blonde brothers with big muscles, and they've got Captain Lou Albano, and they had a win a dream date with the Valiants contest, and there was was (laughs) pictures of the date, so a girl actually, you know, won this thing. So it looked like something was missing in 1979. I had heard that the summer of 79 was supposed to be about the Valiant Brothers. And when they came on TV, it was kind of like, okay, when does the excitement start? Because something was missing, like you said. Yeah, it just seemed like uh, it was almost ho-hum. Here's the Valiant Brothers, ho-hum, big deal. And uh, But I think looking back in retrospect, I think the most interesting part of it now is Jimmy Valiant, he just kind of, fell off the face of the earth. But then when he came back to wrestling in the early 80s or mid-80s, he really became this cult hero in wrestling, which I, it kind of it boggles my mind. But now it makes sense. You know, in the NWA, uh, as uh, other folks have said on the great podcast, he was a great star for these B and C town shows, and he always sold out. He was a great guy for the Crockett's. But, you know, he looked like kind of like Howard Hughes. You know, like crazy Howard Hughes became... Jimmy Valiant became Howard Hughes, and uh, it's just interesting to me how that all happened. No, I agree with you. I mean, I it was hard for me in like 85 to see that version of Jimmy Valiant on WTBS because I was used to the WWF version of Jimmy Valiant. Yeah, yeah, and, and to think it was the same guy was even kind of a stretch, you know, it's just really the same guy, but 
he's a really, I mean, I met him one time, a really nice guy, and uh, he's trained a lot of people at his wrestling school, and, and, I, and he's probably still wrestling now, but uh, he's just a phenomenal person. But, you know, he definitely, uh, that run in the WDBF, even Lou Albano got a big win over him at MSG, so that's kind of how, how far he had fallen in uh, the, the minds of the McMahons, I think. Yeah, you know, you made a really good point. I don't think I've ever thought of this before. You have the Valiants in 74 and 75. They leave, I want to say, middle of 75. And then superstar Billy Graham comes in. And he's like this kind of the same deal as like a Valiant brother, except he's a lot bigger and a lot more muscular. And once you've seen superstar Billy Graham, the Valiants lose a little bit of their luster. Yeah, I, I think with Billy, the, the big difference between, obviously, besides the body, obviously, just the way he talked, he had a certain intensity about him. Like, you know, even though he wasn't a great worker in the ring, obviously, he had great matches with Bruno as far as just the heat. And uh, you thought he was going to hurt Bruno, and that got the fans all excited. With the Valiants, because they were kind of roly-poly guys, people didn't take him that seriously. No, and again, maybe that was the difference between 74 and 75. And 79. And do you think they, they took too long to bring them back? Yeah, I, I think so. It, it, you know, but then again, if my theory holds true about Superstar, and I guess, you know, anytime 75 or after, they would have been comparing him, them to him. And, and I don't think they would have held up as well. Yeah, maybe it's not a coincidence that they came back right after Superstar Billy Graham left in 1978. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting looking back on it that way. So anyway, so now I didn't know about it, but you had mentioned that Jimmy Valiant came down with hepatitis C, I think it is. And right. so they had to bring in an emergency third Valiant brother who was Guy Mitchell, who I had seen in the magazine. So I'm like, OK, well, they have a fake Valiant brother, but he was just as much of a Valiant as the other two and at, the, at the end of the day. True. But I mean, what are your thoughts when they when they brought in the third Valiant brother? Well, you know, as, as a teenager at the time, I mean, I didn't know it was pre-Meltzer. We didn't know any inside information. I guess I probably surmised that some, Jimmy had been injured because he wasn't really doing any wrestling. He was there talking sometimes, but uh, he, he seemed like an okay replacement. And, and they kind of muddled through. And, and before you know it, they were, you know, on their way out. And 1980, you know, Backlund had some phenomenal matches with Patera, and of course the Bruno Zabisco thing happened, so by the time the Valiants were gone, I think us fans on the East Coast, we didn't really think about the Valiants that much anymore. No, and yeah, you know, like I said, it, it seemed like instead of adding to the act, bringing in Gentleman Jerry, for me, kind of watered down the act. Um, even though he was by far the best worker of the three of them, I didn't understand what work was in 1979. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the Valiants were supposed to be rebellious, kind of like rock. And they were kind of like uh, maybe an early 70s version of the Freebirds. And, you know, Gentleman Jerry definitely, uh, he would have been more fitting for a country club than a, a you know, Freebird concert. Yeah, and supposedly the uh, Johnny and Jimmy did not get along with Jerry, which uh, further compounds the issue. Interesting, interesting. All right. We have a jobber named Mike Hall in the WWF. And this guy looks kind of familiar. Yeah, he had, he had been Otto von Heller a few years ago, a tough uh, German mid-card heel. In fact, I think there was a Bruno uh, TV match against him that I, I remember, I think I had on videotape a long time ago. And uh, he, he was a pretty decent wrestler, but yeah, he just somehow ended up going by the maybe his real name and just being an enhancement guy for a good year or two. 
Yeah, I remember when he first came on, I was like, wait a minute, this guy looks familiar. And then I thought about it and went back and looked at the magazine, and there there he is. He's Otto von Heller. And <laughs> talk about an over-the-top German name, Otto von Heller. Wow, how do you top that? <laughs> yeah, he would he look pretty imposing in the ring. I remember the, the Bruno TV match, but nothing else from him, really. I remember seeing him in the magazines, and I, I've also seen that match against Bruno, but I guess this guy just needed some work. And also, while we're speaking of the jobbers, and by the way, I'm not using that term as you know any kind of a slur. I mean, a jobber is a guy who does jobs. I'm not trying to insult anybody. A guy named Bob Fulton is on TV, and I had the, the couple of Bob Fulton matches, and maybe 10 years ago, someone put one on, up on Twitter, and they're like, hey, Bobby Fulton, you remember this is you? And Bobby's like, yep, that's me. And I was like, whoa, wait a minute. That is not Bobby Fulton. But it was. And I asked him about it. Bobby, Bobby's a really nice guy to interact with on Twitter. And I know he's had some health issues. I hope he's doing well. Yeah, he confirmed that it was him. And it's this like dark haired, chubby dude. And he's like, yeah, that's before I learned how, what not to eat. <laughs> yeah, I, I, he's one guy I really don't remember in the old WWWF. I remember you had said on another podcast that uh, you remember seeing a young Jim Duggan and how they were pushing him. And, and Duggan, I think, maybe started in 79 or 80. And But, but yeah, Bobby Fulton, you know, I don't know how many years it took him to become a fantastic, but he really improved and became one of the be- best tag team wrestlers of the 80s for sure. Yeah, I mean, I remember him in 84 in Mid-South, and I I couldn't imagine him making that transformation, but good for him. All right, and we we had mentioned Tony Gree and Larry Zbysko. I'm I'm getting this from Nikita's book. I remember this happening. Tony Gurria and Larry Zbysko are now wearing matching white jackets with black trim and identical trunks and boots. This was a new thing for... Was it a new thing for the WWF or for wrestling in general? Because I don't remember the teams dressing identically like that, or the babyface teams, I should say. Yeah, that doesn't uh, it doesn't really resonate with me at all. I, I will say this, uh, kind of going back a little bit. It's interesting that the Valiants had to replace a member because the year before, as the Lumberjacks, UConn Lumberjacks, were finishing their run, uh, that uh, the, the Irwin brother, who eventually passed away, uh, he got ill, and they uh, Victor Rivera ended up replacing him on a lot of the house shows. So it's like these uh, major heel acts were having some problems with their uh, uh, you know, or attendance already, or health issues, I should say. Yeah, I had no idea who the second lumberjack was, but as soon as they had a uh, who was it, uh, Eric and Pierre, I, rem- I remember recognizing eric as wait a minute that's scott Irwin from florida and, that's right you know keep exposing the business to me guys all right <laughs> february 19th madison square garden show highlighted by a 60 minute draw between bob Backlund and greg valentine this is on wwe network if you haven't seen it i strongly recommend it. it is an excellent match have you seen it steve we actually talked about it on uh, our my stick to wrestling from a year or two years ago, and and we and you and I both loved the match. I mean, it was a great match. And at the time, I said that both of them were so similar in style; they they seemed separated at birth. Yeah, I mean, they, you're right. They do have very similar styles. I mean, I talked about this. I went to a Bob Backlund versus Magnificent Morocco match that went 60 minutes, and it was terrible. And this match was far from it. It can be done. You can tell your story in 60 minutes and still have a good match. 
Now, I was in New York on February 19th visiting relatives, and I know it, they had some kind of a weird snow cyclone thing going over the city, and mm-hmm. it dumped over 20 inches of snow on the ground. We were trying to get home on Amtrak, and we couldn't, and Bruno Sammartino could not get to town to wrestle Ivan Koloff, so we had Ivan Putski take his place. Bob Backlund versus Greg Valentine, and then Bruno versus Koloff take me to the show. Yeah. Well, it, it was interesting in the fact that, you know, Bruno Koloff was always a big, big deal. And but the fact that Bruno missed this show, it gave uh, Koloff ammunition in the interviews saying, like, you were ducking me. You were hiding from me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, you know, like it was uh, like Bruno was, you know, intentionally ducking him. But but uh, yeah, so it, it added some heat to their next match. But uh, those guys were really uh, great together. And even more than that, I like Patera against Bruno. That Those were great matches. Oh, yeah. I mean, Bruno, anytime you get Bruno against a powerhouse that can wrestle like Koloff, like Patera, as you said, I mean, you're, you're getting your money's worth. We have the new tag team champions, Larry Zabisco and Tony Degria, taking on Stan Stasiak and Peter Maivia. I mean, Maivia is starting to sink like a stone. A, minute, uh, a month ago, he was in the main event. Yeah, yeah. Stasiak, they did one thing with him that was really terrible. Uh, you know, when he came in, they, they really promoted him strong, and they, they made the heart punch seem like the most deadliest of all weapons. And then once he got done with his Bruno matches and he started to kind of go to the mid-card, uh, all of a sudden, everyone, Tony Guerrilla and everyone else had developed a block for the heart punch, all of a sudden. And it just made him look so ineffective, and, and they really kind of neutered Stan Stasiak, this great killer. But, you know, he, he really... Um, was a hardworking guy, and um, you know he was even wrestling into the early '80s in Portland. But I, I was this big Stasiak fan. I thought he was not a great wrestler in the ring, as far as you know, work rate or any of that. But definitely a menacing heel. Even though I guess in real life he was a very uh, kind, uh, soft-hearted guy. Yeah, I remember seeing Stasiak for the first time. I want to say it was August 1976. He returned to the WWF. And here's this guy, they're billing as a former WWF champion, and he's got the Grand Wizard as his manager, and he looked like a threat to Bruno. And they really carried that, you know, former WWF champion, not mentioning that he had it for, what, nine days or something like that? (laughs) That's right. Yeah, yeah, they practically billed those matches as champion against champion and made it seem like a real big deal at the time. Yeah, and, you know, here I am, you know, not knowing any better, because I had just started watching, thinking that, okay, you know, back in 74, this guy was the heel equivalent of Bruno Sammartino running around with the WWF title. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. But yeah, he, so this was Stan Stasiak's last appearance. He had, like I said, he'd been here for like uh, two and a half years. Very uh, unusual for a heel to be in the WWF. I mean, if you're in there half that long, you're there for a long time. He was there for two and a half years. Yeah, I guess, you know, I think that the office probably liked him. He was getting good paydays, and he, uh, you know, kept wrestling. Like I said, he went to Portland and went went other places. And one thing that I always remember about him, uh, there was a great story that apparently he wrestled Andre in Toronto one time, and he gave Andre the heart punch, and at first Andre didn't sell it at all. But then after a little pause, he collapsed. And uh, I think, you know, Andre went on to win the match, but just the fact that Andre like went to one knee or, or went down to the mat, it really put the heart punch over as a spectacular move. Yeah, I had never heard that story before. That's really cool. 
this is the end for Stan Stasiak in the WWF, his last match ever there. By this time, he's losing on TV in, you know, tag team matches. He's not the guy taking the fall, but like, you know, the real stars didn't even do that. And almost having him as a former WWF champion, they always talked about it, almost seemed like at this point to, to kind of cheapen the title a little bit. Yeah, I, I'm I'm surprised they did kind of push him along, but uh, you know maybe I guess it was you know like the beginning of the end, and he wasn't really uh, pushing for them to do anything more with him, so they just kept him around in prelims. All right. Well, well, we have time to talk about one more big thing. Around this time, Chief J Strongbow gets a big TV match against Greg the Hammer. He's no longer he's not the Hammer yet. Supposedly that's a nickname Strongbow gave him because he worked so tight. But Greg Valentine against Chief J. Strongbow on TV. Steve, what were your thoughts coming into this match? Well, you, you knew something was going to happen because whenever you'd have like two kind of uh, uh, main stars, the undefeated young Greg Valentine against J. Strongbow, who was, you know, kind of like the people's champion in that era, you knew something was going to come out of that match. And, and they had a good, you know, clean, uh, for the most part, match. It was going back and forth. And I, I do recall they at one point they both got knocked out. And, and the only time you ever would see Ernie Roth interfere, he interfered in this match where he brought it in the ring. Uh, the Grand Wizard brought it in this uh, pitcher of water and threw it in Valentine's face to help him revive. And then Valentine went to apply the figure four. And then Chief was out of action for quite, a, quite some time after that. Yeah, he was out for a couple of months with a broken leg. I mentioned this recently on the show. I thought that was a great finish and I'm surprised not every promotion did it. But for me, as soon as I saw the grand wizard revive Greg Valentine, I knew Strongbow was in big trouble and I was right. <laughs> and, and, and John, you can confirm this. I, I think Strongbow went to uh, Japan and wrestled over there for a while while he was on injured reserve. Is that, is that correct? I, I'm not sure, but that, that, that sounds right. I know that he, I mean, the WWF was sending their guys to Japan in 1979, so you're probably correct. Yeah, I think he went for like an MSG tag team series, one of those deals. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Strongbow was out for two months. It was a big angle that everyone was talking about. And like we had alluded to earlier, the WWF was a territory. They didn't run a lot of angles. You know, I mean, 20 years ago, we were having 10 angles per TV episode. and But when you got one here, it really stood out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and the fans uh, really, they bought into this one big time. And I remember, uh, and you would probably remember, uh, when before he returned to the ring, they had Strongbow come back and sit in the audience in street clothes with a, I think he had a cowboy hat on. And uh, and, and they would, the camera would pan on him and saying, oh, my God, it's Chief J. Strongbow. And, and I think Valentine was wrestling in the ring and he saw him sitting at ringside and it was like he saw a ghost. So they were really building, putting the story together of, you know, when these two guys get together, it's going to be off the chain. Oh, yeah. Valentine, anytime he got on TV, he would talk about how he ended Chief J. Strongbow's career and how the next guy, you know, he was wrestling at the Boston Garden. The same thing was going to happen to him. And then when Valentine's just out wrestling a squash match and Chief J. Strongbow comes out on crutches, and that's the exact phrase that Vince McMahon used to put it over, Greg Valentine looks like he's seen a ghost. That's right. And uh, I did see the match uh, when they, when he finally came back, I saw a match in Binghamton, my hometown. And uh, it was, it was a bloodbath type match. And, uh, and, and Valentine really was such a good wrestler. I mean, I had seen 
Jace Rombo wrestled Billy Graham a few times, and all those matches were really disappointing. They were all like three to five minutes, really quick, you know, get in, get out, and get done. But Valentine really wrestled, and uh, he gave Backlund a great match. He gave Strongbo a great match. He was really uh, one of the top heels of that era. I, I totally agree. Greg Valentine was phenomenal in all of his WWF runs. Mm-hmm. Steve Generali, I want to thank you for appearing on Stick to Wrestling. You were an excellent guest. Thank you so much, John. I look forward to hopefully doing it again someday. All right. Now, let me go over some stuff with all of you guys. Join our Facebook group. If you go to Facebook and put in Stick to Wrestling, it'll come up. We will be happy to have you. We have daily results. I am doing a 1987 Fantasy Crockett Cup tournament, which is getting a lot of response. Thank you for everyone who's participating. If you want to follow me on Twitter, just search the words John McAdam and follow the guy who has guys fighting with chairs in his avatar. I don't always stick to wrestling, but there's plenty of wrestling in there. I want to thank our producer, Lou Kippelman, for all of the great work he does. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. So long from the Grand State. This concludes our podcast day.